Father, we are so thankful to be able to sing about your love and to sing about it from experience. I hope and pray at least that we sing about it from experience, that we know what it is to have your love cover us and pardon us and fill us up. Oh, Father, if there are any here this morning who do not know that love, I pray that today they would. What joy fills our hearts as we sing about your mercy being more than our sin. We are under a debt we can never repay. Yet you shed your blood. You gave your life as the price, as the cost. So that you might show us mercy and save us and give us this very love we just sang about. That's a love that we see displayed in the passage this morning. As you stand on trial in front of groups of wicked and lawless men, you do so purely out of love for sinners. Your love is a perfect love. It is a pure love. It's a holy love. It is the motivation for all that you have done for us. You are our loving Father. Jesus, you are our loving Savior. And I pray that that would serve to be enough to grip our hearts and give our attention to your word this morning. As we come to your trial today, Lord. Again, I ask that you would bless it. That your word would be compelling to us. Your spirit would be active among us and applying it. That you would protect us by removing distractions that arise. Whether that be our hearts being burdened unnecessarily or our minds being wandering into other things. Whatever may cause us to take our eyes off of you. Would you curb those for the next several minutes that your word may have its full effect. And bless our time that we may behold your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I invite you to take your Bibles and open them back to the Gospel of Luke with me. Chapter 23. Bittersweet this morning as we begin... The last two chapters of Luke's gospel. Bittersweet for me because Luke has become a dear friend. And um, I'm just not sure I can preach anything else. We're back into the Lord's trial. And we, we looked at the first part of it at the end of Luke chapter 22. Verses 63 through 71. where he's on trial before his own countrymen, so to speak. Uh, Religious leaders, Jewish religious leaders. In verses 63, 64, and 65, he's being held captivity uh, in in captivity. And and it's important to note again, not against his will, but according to his will. And in that captivity, he's being treated shamefully and being mocked. And that mocking is characteristic of his whole trial experience. So just by way of recap from two weeks ago, let me 
uh, talk about these few passages. His trial is the most lengthy part of his passion narrative in Luke's gospel. More time and detail is devoted to Jesus on trial than is, uh, for instance, his triumphal entry, his arrest, even his crucifixion, even his resurrection, and ultimately, even if you look in Luke's second book, uh, Acts, even more attention than the ascension of Christ back into heaven. And that's because the trial of our Lord really sets the pace and the tone for what's going to be taking place at the cross where Jesus uh, will be suffering ultimately. But that suffering begins even now as he's standing before uh, wicked men in an unjust trial. And mockery is what characterizes it. The mockery of the guards in verse 63. As they hold Jesus, they mock him and they beat him. Verse 64, they blindfold him, they taunt him, prophesy. Who is it that struck you? Verse 65, they even blaspheme him. And he willingly accepts all of those things. None of this happens against his permission. As we've walked through Luke's passion narrative, as, we, as we've come to call it, through the, the crucifixion of our Lord, or leading up to that crucifixion, we've seen Christ is so intimately aware of all the details, isn't he? In fact, to the point that he, he refuses to let his disciples get in the way. He refuses to be hindered in his mission to the cross. And he knows such details as Judas, who will betray him. And he knows the kiss, the sign of the betrayal. He knows Peter's denial. He knows the donkey that he'll come riding into Jerusalem on and the triumphal entry back into chapter 19. All over and increasingly so, we find Christ is aware and aware and aware and divinely in control and in charge of everything that's happening, including permitting these frail and weak and mortal men to mock him, beat him, blindfold him, taunt him and ultimately even blaspheme him. In other words, we talked about a few weeks ago that this whole trial, as unjust and as weighty and difficult to walk through as it is, it is this divine picture of Christ's supreme love and willingness to suffer on our behalf. In fact, I would take you back to 1 Peter chapter 2. If you don't want to turn there, I will just for a moment. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22 and 23. Verse 22, Peter writes about Jesus and says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. And though we are in the trial of Christ in, in Luke 22 and 23, that reality will be abundantly clear. No sin is committed by this man. Though he's uh, unjustly tried and will be condemned unjustly, it's abundantly clear in the narrative. He is guiltless. He has made no mistake. He has not broken any civil law. He has not broken any law of God. Peter writes in verse 22, He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. And then verse 23 may be much more applicable to the trial of Christ. He says... When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Peter is present for at least part of the trial of Christ. 
And I can't help but wonder when he writes verse 23 in this letter of the second chapter, 1 Peter, if he's thinking about the trial of Christ. When he's reviled by these men who have him on trial, he doesn't revile in return. When he suffers at their hands, when they strike his face, and in Matthew and Mark they spit upon him, even pull out his beard and other things like that, and and wedge a crown of thorns on his head and, and other aspects, he doesn't threaten them. In fact, what is so striking about the trial narrative of Christ is how silent he is. Here we, we find this Jesus that we've encountered all throughout Luke's gospel who has, has in every passage and at every point done uh, certain things. One of those certain things is he's spoken. He's taught at every point available, every opportunity. He's teaching about the things of God, the person of God, the will of God, the principles and precepts of God. He's working miracles. Luke will record Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2 that these works that Christ did attested to the fact that He's the Son of God. The Gospel of Luke is full of those works that attest over and over and over to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. He casts out demons. He heals the unhealable. He, he cleanses the unclean. And He teaches in profound ways, doesn't He? He teaches with authority, with insight, with wisdom, with intellect that's unmatched. And you know what else is striking? Is every time he encounters opposition, every single time in Luke's gospel that he encounters opposition, he responds in such a way that is so profound, his enemies are left speechless. Every other encounter that Christ has with these religious leaders or government leaders, he leaves them unable to defend themselves. They accuse him, he has an answer, and they have no answer left. Except when it comes to his trial. The most important moment of opposition that he has in his life regarding his life, though he could have easily made them speechless again, he remains silent. In fact, from a human perspective, we might say, Jesus, if any time is the right time to speak up, this is the time. Put your enemies to shame. Rise up and declare yourself innocent. Fight for your cause and, and plead for your innocence and your freedom. And, and quiet their mouths. Jesus has displayed a divine understanding, supernatural uh, logic and reasoning. All throughout his life, and he will even as, as soon as his resurrection. Even on the cross we find him speaking again in profound divine ways. But not at his trial. He is very much the lamb that's led to the slaughter. He, he very much holds his tongue uncharacteristically for a very important reason. So that he might be condemned on your behalf. Mockery is, is what characterizes the trial of Jesus from a human perspective. But from the perspective of Christ, silence is what characterizes his trial. He is abnormally quiet. 
so that he might be condemned and executed for us. And so as we walk through the trial of Christ and we consider his silence, you should be reminded over and over again that he is willfully being silent so that he might willfully be condemned to save you and I. This is a picture of love. A wonderful, glorious picture of love in the face of hard to swallow injustice. I shared with you a few weeks ago. This passage is emotional for me. Because as I study it, I find the Lord of glory here and all of his splendor and all of his power with the same power that Hebrews 1 sustains the universe. The, The words of his power that spoke all things into existence. I see him here abandoned. Abandoned by his disciples, denied by his chief disciple, Peter already. Abandoned by the religious leaders who, suppose, who are supposed to represent God. And, and abandoned by Pilate who's supposed to uphold justice. I find him here isolated and surrounded by not just intense opposition, but pure wicked hatred. Truth is abandoned in his trial. And the people who accuse him would do anything to see him put to death. And he allows it. He permits it. And that example is an example of divine love for us. So Peter tells us he's guiltless. He committed no sin. He doesn't revile in return. He doesn't threaten when suffering. He instead entrusts himself to God throughout his whole trial. And it begins back in verse 63, 64, and 65 of chapter 22. With these captors mocking him. By verse 66, if you remember real quickly, we move into the council of the chief priests and the scribes. At the end of verse 66, Luke says, they led him away to their council that they might try him. Uh, Again, not led away against his will, but according to his will. By verse 67, they ask him a question. If you are the Christ, tell us. They demand clarity. Jesus gives his lengthiest response, his first of only three responses. Two of the responses that Christ gives in his trial are just a handful of words. Verse 67 is his lengthiest response. He said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. I've told you over and over and over. My works attest to me. And if I tell you now at my trial, you're still not going to believe. Very much so the, the principle of um, Lazarus and the rich man. When the rich man is in Hades and he says, Send back Lazarus so that he may tell my brothers that all this is real. And Abraham in that parable responds, If they don't believe Moses and the word of God, they're not going to believe somebody resurrected from the dead. Jesus is sharing that same principle. Even if I tell you now with my words in your presence, you're not going to believe me because you haven't believed me yet. And he says, if I ask you, you will not answer. If I ask you what my works attest to you, if I ask you what you think, you'll make up some sort of justification to dismiss me. So he focuses on his future in verse 69. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand 
of the power of God. It tells us Christ knows exactly what's coming. Victory. This trial is temporary. And the cross will be temporary. And the resurrection is imminent. And soon after this suffering, he says, I will be seated at the right hand of God. It's a future of rest, a future of honor, a future of authority. And relatively speaking, that's the last word. Well, after that response in verse 70, they want to know then, are you are you then the son of God? Is that what you're claiming? Remember in Jewish um, religion at the time, they didn't necessarily equate sonship with messiahship. So it's natural that they would ask those two questions differently. Are you the Christ? Are you now saying you're the son of God? Because in their mind, those things are are separate. We know on this side of the New Testament, the cross, that they're together. The Christ, the Messiah is the son of God. But notice the progression here, uh, as we highlighted a few weeks ago. They begin mocking in verse 64 if he's a prophet. Then they move to verse 67 if uh, asking if he's the Christ. And now in verse 70, they ask the most important question. Are you the son of God? The question really centers around who is Jesus? But it culminates in that specific question. Are you the son of God? And he responds in verse 70 with his second verbal response. You say that I am putting the words in their mouth. Then they said in verse 71, we have heard it ourselves from his own lips. What further testimony do we need? Truth be told, anybody with a sound mind can understand at this point that the trial of Christ from the Jewish perspective is a total sham. Very little evidence exists, especially when you're talking about the life of a human being. But it was enough for them. And from that point, they take him to the highest authority they can to try to get him executed. As I was thinking over this text again this week, John chapter 1 popped into my mind in verse 11 of John chapter one, it says, talking about Jesus, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. If ever that was exemplified, it's at the trial. Verse 10 of John chapter one also says he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. And if that's ever made true, it's as he stands before Pilate. Where it's abundantly clear at this point now that both Jew and Gentile alike have rejected him. And he stands alone and isolated because it is there he must die for the sins of the world. So we come into chapter 23 verse 1 and let's, let's read the text before we, we begin to, to walk through it. Chapter 23 verse 1, Luke writes and says, Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, he stirs up the people 
teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When, when Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but Jesus made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas. A man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify Him! A third time He said to them, Why? What evil has He done? I have found in Him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release Him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that He should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. Verse 1 of chapter 23 is this transition where Jesus goes from the custody of the Jews to the custody of Rome. And Luke gives us an emphasis phrase. He says the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. It indicates at least some sense of unity, though I don't think it's um, total unity in condemning Christ. Later on, we'll find members of the Sanhedrin like Nicodemus, who are in Christ's defense and in Christ's service and take care of him even after his death, But the, the point is, there's this emphasis of the vast majority of the Sanhedrin rises up together and leads Jesus to Pilate. We actually know quite a bit about this man named Pilate. Not just from scriptural teachings, but from Roman documents and even from his own letters, his own correspondence. He was a very, very powerful man and at the same time a very cruel man. He was a man who was actually deposed from his position and exiled from his country on grounds of military cruelty. Which coming from the Roman government is quite significant. Rome was an evil government. Rome uh, suppressed their uh, people that they had conquered and they cared very little 
about human rights in that regard, especially to the people that they conquered. And so for Pilate to be removed from his position on grounds of cruelty says this man was absolutely cruel. We actually come to know that Pilate had great disdain for Jerusalem and Jewish faith and rituals. There's an account that's already happened uh, that tells us a little bit about this man in Luke chapter 13, verse 1. Christ knew the man he would stand before uh, in Luke 23. In chap- chapter 13, verse 1, there were some present, it says, at that very time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Their question to Jesus is, do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the others because they suffered in this way? But the point I'm bringing out is verse 1. Look at how Pilate treated them. Not only did he slaughter a massive amount of Galileans, but his cruelty extended even to their faith, where he defiled their sacrifices by mingling their own blood with them. And not only does he defile their sacrifices, but he defiles the very laws and faith and practice of God. This is the man that Jesus stands before. Cruel. On numerous occasions, we find in historical records, he would murder mass, mass amounts of people. If there was a hint at a riot, Pilate didn't wait for evidence. In his particular position as the Roman prefect, he possessed total, total military control, financial control, administrative power everything in Judea came through his office he made the final decision on all things occasionally we find him doing some good things for the Judean people but in most instances he does something that does things that preserves his own reputation and his own pleasures and the power of the Roman government he had very little concern for Jews he actually hated being in Jerusalem. He didn't live there. He was only there on major events or major major festivals. And you might remember at this time, the Passover is taking place. And he would only come to Jerusalem in these major events for crowd control, to exercise his military might to prevent uprisings. Just a side note, all dictators are paranoid about riots and uprisings. And it was true for Pilate. And he came in and he would Make sure that everything stayed in order. As we even see in the the trial of our Lord here, he has very little concern for the accusations of the chief priest. He doesn't care much what they have to say. He has been painted in some commentaries or some circles as a sympathetic individual, sympathetic to the person of Christ, but he's really not. And he's certainly not a man who has any concern for justice. This is the wicked individual that will condemn Christ falsely. Verse 2, these Jewish leaders bring Jesus to Pilate, the very top, the very highest authority they can to move as quickly as they can. And as soon as they come, they begin to accuse him. Their accusation in verse 2 is quite unique. We found this man misleading our nation. Forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ the king. 
This is really the first time we find this charge brought against Jesus. It's not a charge that they declared in their own trial before him. They're instead trying to entice Pilate into an emotional response that accompanies a severe punishment. In other words, they want to stir him up. So they paint Jesus as this zealot who has plans of rebellion who is a threat to the Roman Empire and a threat to Pilate's own reign in Judea. By the way, Pilate is the second longest reigning Roman prefect, uh, tied for the second longest reign uh, in history there, which testifies to his apt leadership. And he is not going to let some Jewish zealot threaten that. And so we find these Jewish leaders Adding another false accusation to Christ, he forbids us to give tribute to Caesar. That sounds quite contrary to what Jesus has already said, doesn't it? Render unto Caesar what is Caesar, and what is to God, render unto God. Nonetheless, they want Jesus to be seen as a threat. Verse 3 is abundantly clear. Pilate doesn't care the Messiah stature of Jesus. And he doesn't much care what he's been teaching. He cares more about the fact as if he's a king or not. Are you the king of the Jews? Surely and and absolutely there's much more questioning that Pilate issues forth. But Luke doesn't include those details because this is the most important question. And Luke spares some time in his gospel and just takes us right to the heart of the issue. The only thing Pilate's really concerned about, are you a threat or not? Jesus responds with his last statement. You have said so. Much like with the Jewish authorities, he puts the words back into Pilate's mouth. But by doing so, he agrees with Pilate. Ultimately, at the end of his examination, Pilate comes to verse four, the most important statement in the trial of Jesus thus far. I find no guilt in this man. We find that declaration made at least four times in Jesus's trial. How telling it is, isn't it? That our Lord would remain silent and let the one who has Uh, earthly judgment over him, declare his own innocence. What a turn of events. Jesus could have rose up and defended his cause. He could have adequately argued his innocence and displayed profound intellect, as we mentioned earlier, to defend his cause. But he lets Pilate do it of all people. And this wicked, unjust Roman ruler rises up and says, this man's not guilty. Not guilty at all. And at that statement, the Jewish leaders become urgent. He stirs up the people. He's teaching all over Judea, from Galilee even to this place. He is a threat, he's a danger. They are abandoning truth. They would rather falsely accuse an innocent man who has been declared publicly innocent 
They would rather falsely accuse him than simply ignore him or much more listen to him. Instead of giving Jesus a fair shot, they want to see him dead. That is, that's the plight of every human being. That's what, that's what Paul talks about in Romans 1. We're all guilty of that very act right there. We always exchange the truth for a lie. Even to the point of exchanging God for our own selfish desires and agendas. Don't, don't read these Jewish leaders, read into them their own wickedness, divorced from your own wickedness. We do the same things. We would rather dispel God so that we might have our way. And at the hint of the fact that Pilate might, he just might let Jesus go. What takes over these men, these Jewish men, to become so urgent? The fear that's bred out of jealousy. And so often when it comes down to God getting the glory or us getting the glory, we respond in jealousy, don't we? And are sometimes even guilty of doing this very thing. How can we remove God from the equation so that we're glorified? Well, I want people to see how much I love. I want people to see how much I serve. I want people to see how well of a, a speaker I am. I want people to see how much I give to the church. We begin to subtly do things less for the glory of God and more for the glory of ourselves. It's these very people and this very behavior that Christ remains silent for. This injustice is the reason Christ is going to the cross. Well, let's speed along. Let's put it into another gear here because we come into the presence of Herod in verse 6. Pilate heard this and he asked whether Jesus was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod because Herod himself was in Jerusalem at that time. Again, presumably for the same reasons as Pilate. Herod is not a man who cares for the Jewish faith. This is Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great. He's the man that John the Baptist rebuked for marrying Herodias, his brother's wife. He's the man who beheaded John the Baptist at the will of uh, his niece. He's not a godly man, not a moral man. Not a just man. And Pilate doesn't jump, uh, dump Jesus off to Herod because Herod has more control. Pilate is the supreme authority in the land. Rather, he pushes Jesus off onto Herod to cleanse and wash his hands of the situation. And Herod is thrilled at it. Verse 8, when he saw Jesus, he was very glad, but not for godly reasons. He had long desired to see Jesus because he'd heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. For Herod, Jesus was nothing more than a gesture for amusement. And again, how many of us treat Jesus the same way? What benefit or entertainment might I get? Instead of being people that readily acknowledge and confess that our lives should be spent for His glory and His kingdom... Herod wants to see Jesus and he wants to be entertained by him. 
He wants to have pleasure from Him. He wants to be amused. What a tragic way to treat the Son of God. The whole trial of Christ just stinks with injustice. And it reeks of dishonor to God. It is an appalling account of human pride trying to elevate itself above the supreme majesty of Christ. In my opinion, it is absolutely, if not the most, one of the most appalling, appalling, disgusting acts of humanity on display. In verse 9, Luke includes a detail that he didn't include for Pilate, but was presumably true for Pilate. In verse 9, he says, Herod questioned Jesus at some length. But Jesus made no answer. That's not just a fill-in detail for Luke. He has a point for including that into Herod's examination of Jesus. He questions and he questions and he questions and he probes and he probes and he probes. How can I get Jesus to perform for me? How can I get Jesus to react? How can I get Jesus to answer? How can I get what I want out of Him? And with a glaring detail, Luke says, the Lord didn't open his mouth. He knew Herod's heart. He knew what Herod wanted. You want a sign? You want entertainment? You want amusement? Well, then you'll get nothing. Not even something as simple as the voice of Christ. He didn't get to hear Jesus speak. Tells us something about the way Jesus viewed him, right? Jesus will speak to this Jewish leaders and Sanhedrin. He'll even speak to the cruel man Pilate. He won't even utter a word to Herod. He's not worth the escape of the breath of Christ. And then, probably the saddest part of the whole scene, verse 10. The chief priests and the scribes are standing around him and by him, vehemently accusing him. Imagine here what restraint Christ must possess. What patience. Oh, I'm convicted because I fly off the handle at far lesser things. Anger rises up with me. Within me for far lesser things than this. And yet our, our Lord is found standing here resolute. With the resolve that he, he determined to have in the garden. When he prayed for the Father's will to be done. His heart was set to the cross. And nothing will change that. Even this sad scene. Where he stands being examined by this wicked. Dishonoring Jewish leader who's in cahoots with a corrupt Roman government, all the while these corrupt religious leaders stand by lobbying false accusation after false accusation over him. And he's silent again. Quiet. Willfully taking it all. 
This is the part where I come to conclude Christ is not only surrounded by those who are opposed to them. He's surrounded by pure hatred. It's a sad scene where a man won't make his case while everybody around him speaks of how much they dislike him. Silence must be a divine attribute in some regard. Even in verse 11, it's not just the religious leaders of the Sanhedrin who are vehemently accusing him. But as we saw in, in chapter 22, verse 63 and 4 and 5, Herod and his soldiers are treating him with contempt and mocking him. And then they array him in splendid clothing and no doubt, incredibly frustrated, send him back to Pilate. Frustrated because they didn't get what they wanted out of him. But here's one last attempt at mockery. And who we know to be the Lord of glory and majesty and splendor beyond all compare, who's robed in light that is blinding, who at the very sight, Isaiah falls down and cries, woe is me, I'm undone. Who at the very sight, John in Revelation falls down as dead. Who at the very sight, just the glimpse of his backside, Moses' face radiates the rest of his life, is found dressed now in mockery of human royal robes and sent back to this cruel man, Pilate. And Herod and Pilate become friends with each other that very day. They had been at enmity with each other before, but their disdain and hatred for Jewish everything has united them. And I can imagine Pilate sitting there as Jesus comes back into his presence and seeing him arrayed in this mockery of a robe, he has to let out a smirk and perhaps a chuckle or two. Our Lord is humiliated in every way. This is the second declaration of Christ being innocent. Look at verse 15. Pilate declares, Herod sent him back to us. He didn't find him guilty. Pilate had put everything into Herod's court. You have jurisdiction. You make the call. I don't want to deal with Jesus. If you want to condemn him, you condemn him. No questions asked. And not even Herod would condemn him. It's at this point that the very law that condemned Peter, denying Jesus, remember two or three witnesses can demand a case, that very law is now declaring Christ innocent. Here are at least two witnesses now that have examined Jesus and have found him to be guiltless. Now he's back in Pilate's present in verse 13. And Pilate makes it even more abundantly clear. He calls together those chief priests and the rulers and the people to tell them this express thing in verse 14. You brought me this man as one who's misleading the people. And yet after examining him, I unequivocally, absolutely clearly tell you, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges. There's nothing that he's done wrong. Herod didn't find him guilty. I don't find him guilty. And then in verse 15 he says, Look, nothing, nothing deserving death has been done by him. 
This is what makes the trial of Christ so weighty, so sorrowful, so disgusting. For all the injustice that surrounds the event, those who don't care a thing about him or a thing about justice have been forced themselves to say he's an innocent man. Verse 16, Pilate doesn't really care about Jesus nor justice. He cares about appeasing this crowd and preventing a riot. He says, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I find him guilty of nothing. But look, I'll go ahead and punish him and then give him back to you. At least let me flog him a couple times. Pilate's no saint in this story. He's an innocent man, but just to make you happy, I'll beat him a few times for a few hours. Then you can have him back. How about that? How can I appease you? Well, this doesn't appease them. Verse 18, they cry out for Barabbas, a man who is a threat to Rome. Absolutely. He's been put in prison because he was convicted of starting an insurrection in the city. And he's been convicted of murder. Now, not only are they exchanging truth for a lie, but they're exchanging wickedness for righteousness and safety for harm and goodness for evil. Barabbas Though a real human being is a great symbol of the exchange we make every time we sin against God. Well, Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. And they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. A total disregard for justice, a total disregard for innocence, a total disregard for doing what is right. Their disdain for Jesus has arisen to the point where they will do anything to have the man killed. Pilate says again in verse 22, a third time, why? What evil has he done? I have found no evil. I have found nothing in him, no guilt deserving death. Let me just punish him and release him. Oh, but they become even more urgent, fearful that now their opportunity may be escaping their hands, that, that maybe now Jesus is actually going to be released and that cannot be. So let me be urgent and demand with loud cries that he should be crucified. And in a tragic few words in Luke's gospel, their voices prevailed. And Pilate decided as the coward that he is, that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. For whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. He gave up the clear threat to Roman government. And human safety. Because that's what they asked for. Anytime we ask for something less than Jesus. That's what we're asking for. And they gave Jesus over to their will. Crucifixion is on the horizon for nothing more than the reason that they demanded it. Over and over and over again, our Lord is declared guiltless. Our Lord is declared innocent. Not worth death. And in all of it, he didn't rise up and say, listen to my innocence, listen to, to my guiltless state being declared and all of it. He was silent. Isaiah chapter 53, verse seven, he was oppressed. And he was afflicted, 
yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Our Lord in this passage is found being mocked, being beaten, being ridiculed, falsely accused, falsely condemned, and totally quiet. Not once rising to his own defense. And what love must that display to you and I? Christ always fights against injustice in the Gospels. He always rises up and rebukes darkness. Except here. Because here He knows that He will vanquish darkness by being falsely, wrongly condemned. The reason Christ is surrounded by his own permission, by such hatred and opposition, is because he wants to die for you. He wants to die for me. And in that light and in that mindset of God, I am forced to realize that he is screaming to me through his trial, I will do anything to secure your salvation. I will endure anything to glorify the Father and redeem you. Oh, whether you're an individual who doubts your salvation and wrestles with the guilt of your sin, you should look at this and say, God so adamantly wants to cleanse you. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just through Christ to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. How do we know that promise is trustworthy? How do we know that promise is true? Because look at all that Christ went through to make it a reality. He longs to cleanse you of your guilt. He longs to take away your shame. He longs to replace your regret with praise and wonder and worship in His presence. He longs to take your brokenness and begin to make it right. And if anything should convince us, it should be how much He is willing to endure so that He might die. The suffering of Christ has already begun, but it's not the worst part. He endures all this suffering and opposition to get to the worst part. To be strung up on a hunk of wood and shed his blood, pour it all out for sinners. We've talked about it over and over through Luke's gospel. Let me reference it again. Romans chapter 5. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8. Those of us who are totally opposite of God. Those of us who find ourselves 
not in Jesus in this story, but who find ourselves in Pilate, who find ourselves in Herod, who finds ourselves in, in the Sanhedrin, who have mocked God and ridiculed His law and ridiculed His majesty and His splendor and blasphemed Him in our lives and need desperately mercy. And Christ, so desiring to show that mercy, endured such injustices. Oh, the trial of Christ is a weighty passage. It disgusts our hearts and it brings us low and it brings us to a point of weeping, I hope, in our spirit. I hope we don't treat a text like this lightly. I hope we encounter a text like this and we are spurred to say, thank you. I hope it breeds within you, Christian, gratitude and humility and more repentance and adoration, and devotion. And if it doesn't produce any of those things, you've missed it. If it doesn't stir your heart to, to gratefulness to Christ, to gratitude to God, to worship Him, you've missed it, and your heart is, has missed out on a great picture of God's love for you. An unbeliever, if, if, if God would be working in your heart this morning, you would be brought to a place of true repentance today as a result of this. You would look at this passage and say, Oh Christ, you would be willing to die for me. I must give you my everything. Oh, a weighty text like this elicits a response, church. We cannot remain the same tomorrow having encountered our Lord in such a situation as this. And so in that spirit, I'm going to ask you to take a few moments and bow your heads with me and in a few minutes of silence here, examine your heart and, and ask Christ and His Spirit to impress upon you the truth of this text. And then I will pray and we will worship God. Father, I'm convinced this text is worth staying late for and reflecting. And God, I know that it's by way of a poor communicator that this, this passage could be, could be mingled up. And, and I know poor communication can get in the way, but I'm pleading with you now that through your spirit, O oh Father, you would remove the hindrances of a poor communicator and impress upon our souls the significance of your trial on our behalf. You allow, in some mysterious way, you allow such injustice so that you might deal out justice on your son at the cross. And you allow unjust men to make unjust accusations so that your son, 
falsely condemned, unjustly condemned, might deal forth righteousness to the wicked. Oh, there are so many details here for us, Father, to consider. So many appalling things where we can even find ourselves. So many things that honestly break my heart. And yet I pray that we are confronted with a supreme picture of your love for us. Why else would you let Pilate have a say over your life? Why else would you let Herod have a say over your life? Why else would you submit yourself to religious leaders whom time and time again you have silenced their opposition? Why else but a desire to glorify the Father at the cross and to secure our salvation as He has willed? There is no other reason. Such hostility is permitted by you for that sole fact. To glorify the Father in saving us. This, O oh God, is the beginning of a picture of divine love. We don't have to wait to the cross to see how much you love us. We're seeing it now. And I pray, God, that we are not blinded to it. Oh, let us linger here, Father, for as long as we need to. So that you may impress upon our hearts through your spirit, the power of your word, the truth of your sacrifice and suffering. And may we thank you and praise you this morning. For enduring such hostility for us in Jesus name, amen.